Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 8, The Original Goth Girl. As an advisory note for this podcast, it does contain some mature content, so you've been warned. As a lifelong aficionado of philosophy, there have been times when the English gentleman William Godwin has crossed my reading list. He was one of the first proponents of utilitarianism and is also recognised as one of the progenitors of modern anarchist theory. I'm going to savage his concept and despair philosophy theorists everywhere by saying that in a very short summary, utilitarianism is like when Spock gives his life in Wrath of Khan and says that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or if you're only watching the more recent films, I gave the sacrifice to Kirk. Or for us here at the Victorian Gas Lamp, we could totally see Admiral Horatio Nelson doing the same. The philosophy covers the idea that things should be done if they maximise well-being for the majority of the population. Goodwin was also known, as I mentioned, as an anarchist. The concept of anarchy was not quite what social media meaning is today. He was advocating independence self-management and a lack of hierarchy. But we're not here today to talk about him, although I have to say reading his work makes me want to go on for hours about it, nevertheless. Suffice to say, he was one of the leading minds of his time on social structures, and we move on to when he married one Mary Wollstonecraft. Now, I regard William as smart, but his wife? Well, Mary was more than his equal. We're slightly outside the 1800s, but we're getting there, and this is important. Today, gossip makes much of Mary's, shall we say, unconventional relationships. She had affairs with men, a child by one of them, and naturally the media then and until recently decided that these details of her life were worth more than her utterly brilliant work. In 1792, her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, was published. Shockingly, she argued that women were not naturally inferior to men, but only appeared so because of the lack of education offered to them. She also had the temerity to suggest that both men and women should be treated as rational beings and advocated for a social order based on reason. I know. Crazy, right? And it begs the question, of course, why isn't this being taught in our schools today? Anyway, through literary circles, William and Mary met. It probably didn't hurt their relationship that William penned his thoughts on her work, letters written in Sweden, Norway and Denmark, as thus. If ever there was a book calculated to make a man in love with its author, This appears to me to be the book. She speaks of her sorrows in a way that fills us with melancholy and dissolves us into tenderness, 
at the same time that she displays a genius which commands all our admiration. Nice work, William. They began an affair and soon Mary was pregnant. To ensure the legitimacy of their daughter, the couple were married in March of 1797 and in August their daughter, also called Mary, was born. Tragically, the placenta broke during the birth and Mary, the mother, suffered for five days in agony before succumbing to septicemia and passing away. William then raised his daughter on his own until he married again in 1801. To make matters simple for us, maybe for him too, his new wife was also named Mary. So, saving on having to remember lots of names here. Might be a test afterwards though, so it doesn't really matter. Now, Mary, the daughter, did not have a formal education, but did receive a thorough education from having tutors and a governess. In addition, she also met and spent time with friends of her father, including the brilliant poet, critic and theologian Samuel Taylor Coleridge and former American Vice President Aaron Burr. He's the one, of course, that shot former First Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. Now, poor Mary did not get along with new mum Mary 2.0 and she ended up living with her father's friend, William Baxter, and his family, which included his four daughters. So there's another William. He's getting a little bit weird. At this time, she was 16, and it was while staying with the Baxters that young Mary Godwin meets the 21-year-old Percy Shelley. Percy, well, he was a big fan of her dad's work. He came from a family that had some wealth, and they weren't really big fans of his following Godwin's idea of sharing the wealth. You get that sometimes. I'll definitely be covering Percy in his own podcast at some other time, so I'm only going to cover here is his relationship with Mary, rather than all of his work. But I will say that his poem Ozymandias is one of my favourites. Even without knowing who Percy is, you might be vaguely familiar with his work. It inspired C.S. Lewis for the ancient city in the Narnian volume, The Silver Chair, and it became the name of one of the heroes in Alan Moore's The Watchman comic, and then the movie, and it was also an influence on the cold play song Viva La Vida. Percy was married to Harriet at the time he met Mary. Although they were estranged, and soon Mary and the man she described as wild, intellectual and with unearthly looks were having an affair. How do you beat unearthly looks? They would meet in secret at her mother's grave at St Pancras graveyard and the legend goes that it was here in this graveyard that the young Mary, who was 17 by this time, lost her virginity to Percy. Like I said, she was the original goth. Any concerns that Mary's father, William, might have had towards the couple's relationship were assuaged when the financially secure Percy agreed to pay off all of William, the father's, debts, of which there were many. But Percy's money was tied up by his parents, and either because of them, or his later unwillingness, he did not end up paying off the debts, leading to acrimony between the two men. Her father no longer approving of the relationship, Mary then eloped with Percy on the 28th of July, 1814. 
they fled to France, taking with them Claire Claremont, who was Mary's stepsister. However, it wasn't an elopement as we know them today. The couple wasn't married, and Percy had fled, leaving behind a very pregnant, very much his legal wife, Harriet. Doing the 19th century equivalent of backpacking slash blogging and Instagramming the whole thing, they travelled around France reading and writing. Their money ran out after a couple of months, because they weren't working, and they returned to England. Mary tried asking her father for money, but since his lambasting in the press over his daughter's scandalous actions, he refused to help. Not sure why, but this came as a surprise to Mary. During this time, they moved around London regularly, avoiding creditors, and Harriet gave birth to a son, which Percy was reportedly elated to be father to and enjoyed spending time with. And it was at this time that Mary found herself pregnant to Percy. So she was dealing with being pregnant, her so-called husband spending time with his son and also having to deal with Percy stepping out, so to speak, with her stepsister Claire. Relationships really can get complicated, can't they? Mary actually didn't believe in the institution of marriage and actually advocated the ideal of free love between consenting adults. But Percy's behaviour was a source of anger and frustration to her. Sadly, her daughter was born two months premature and died a month later. During the following months, Mary was haunted by visions of her lost child. However, a few months later, she fell pregnant again and this time happily gave birth to her son. Can you guess his name? Well done you, yes it was William. Fortune further smiled on the couple in a bittersweet way. Percy's grandfather died, but he did leave Percy enough money to make them financially comfortable. In 1816, the couple, along with their son and of course stepsister Claire, travelled to Geneva for a visit to stay with Percy's friend, the well-renowned Lord Byron. He's another podcast. Claire pretty much had to come with him, actually, because in England she'd been having an affair with the poet and politician Lord Byron and was carrying his child. So they all felt it prudent to keep out of the uh, social limelight for a while. Seriously, I am wondering why Netflix hasn't made this into a miniseries. Nevertheless, the weather was horrible while they were there, so it was decided that they would all make up ghost stories to entertain each other. Now, I need to jump outside the narrative for just a moment, as I'm going to be very concise here with apologies to Galvani's amazing work. Luigi Galvani was an Italian physician that found by applying electricity to a body, in his case frogs, that he could make the limbs move. He had a theory that what he called was animal electricity was what caused bodies to be able to move. His nephew, Giovanni, in 1803, famously used the corpse of executed criminal George Forster and in a public display caused the dead man's legs to be set into motion, the right hand to raise and clench, the face to contort and to even have an eye open. I'm not joking when I write that, that's what actually happened. 
can you actually imagine getting access to a body today to do that into a public display? Even today, people use the term galvanized into action. That's where it comes from. Now, back to where we were. Now, this was huge news at the time and something that clearly stayed in the memory of Mary Shelley. Trying to think of something to write about, Mary remembered Galvani's work and much later in 1831 wrote about her inspiration and remembers asking herself the idea that perhaps a corpse could be reanimated. It was from this that I would like to call a gas lamp moment that Mary created the short story that upon encouragement from Percy became a full length novel. That rainy summer Shelley described as being the time when she stepped out from childhood and into life. And the ghost story she wrote? Well, I'm sure many of you know it already. Frankenstein. The story of Victor Frankenstein and the monster he created is an absolute classic and has been in the cinema for decades, as well as influencing writers everywhere who enjoy a good dark story. It has even been called an early example of science fiction for its use of science as a driving force within the plot. I won't get into the plot or the background of the story it's too much for here, but no doubt another podcast right there. But just so you know, calling the monster Frankenstein is something that we did to Mary's work, not the author. Shelley only refers to the monster by denigrating terms. Wretch, monster, demon and fiend were all words she used. But for some unknown reason, the name became synonymous with the creation itself and that's how we know him today. Speculation has been offered that the name Frankenstein came from the time Mary had spent in Europe. They had stayed in a region that was only a few miles from Frankenstein's castle in the Rhineland in 1814. The castle had been home two centuries before to Conrad Dippel, who was known to have experimented with bodies. Also, the name Victor was a nom de plume for Percy and some of the works that he wrote. And in a further what the moment when reading up for this episode, I found that when Mary had sadly lost her premature daughter, Percy had shown indifference to the tragic loss and gone off to spend time with her stepsister Claire. And those who, knowing the Frankenstein tale, would remember that Victor Frankenstein ignored his responsibilities and abandoned his creation too. He might have been a wonderful writer, but quite frankly, I really don't think much of the man with that stunt. Let's leave the darkness there, shall we? Frankenstein was published anonymously in 1818, and then under Mary's name in 1823, the novel receiving broad praise. Pretty much any criticism towards the work was based on the fact that Mary was a woman. What a bunch of schmucks. 
I think I can sum up a reply to those men by citing one of my favorite directors at Guillermo del Toro, who is on record as saying that Frankenstein is the quintessential teenage book, adding, you don't belong, you are brought into this world by people that don't care for you, and you are thrown into a world of pain and suffering and tears and hunger. It's an amazing book written by a teenage girl. It is mind-blowing. Well said, Guillermo. But before the book became a public sensation, on their return to England in 1816 from that holiday, Mary and Percy lived in Bath. Her stepsister Claire lived nearby. Of course she did. They were hoping to keep Claire's pregnancy to Lord Byron a secret by being away from those that knew them. On October 9th, a letter delivered via Bristol from Mary's half-sister Fanny came to them saying that she was in an unhappy life. Percy went to Bristol to find her without success though, and on the 10th, she was found dead in Swansea with a suicide note and a laudanum bottle. And on December 10th, Percy's wife Harriet drowned herself in the Serpentine Lake near Hyde Park in London. To improve his chances of retaining the children that he had had with Harriet, Percy actually married Mary on December 30th. And she was also pregnant at the time. But wait, there's still more to come. Claire gave birth in January to Alba, who was later called Allegra for some unknown reason that I could find out. Percy did not get custody of his children. They went to live with a clergyman, and so the expanded family could only go by the relationship status of it's complicated, then move to Buckinghamshire. Mary gave birth to Clara on September 2nd, 1817, Shortly thereafter, the novel Frankenstein was published. Now we're up to speed, all the timelines are matching, everyone's back together, nice. But debts and ill health meant that the Shelleys, and again Claire, decided to go to Italy to live with no intention of returning to England. Here, in Venice, Lord Byron agreed to take custody of Allegra, as long as Claire had nothing more to do with her. Harsh. This time, they embarked on roaming around Italy, sometimes with friends, travelling, socialising, exploring, and while that sounds like a great way to live, it was during this time that further tragedy struck. In 1818, Mary's daughter Clara died in Venice, and later in 1819, her son William died of malaria in Rome. While Mary gave birth to another son, named Percy in 1819, the loss of her children would be something she remembered until the end of her life. Even with all this sadness, she still described Italy as being a country which memory painted as paradise. Regardless of their tragic losses, it certainly seems that they enjoyed their time in Italy. Percy had numerous affairs, and as she didn't believe in marriage, it appears Mary formed attachments of her own during this time. In 1822, the couple were living in Villa Magni outside of San Terenzo. Of course, Claire was there, as was Jane Williams, another woman that Percy had been having an affair with. Like I said, why isn't this a TV series? Mary was then pregnant, 
again. Mary later described her time at the villa as like being in a dungeon. Also, her health was beginning to suffer. In July, Percy took his boat, <laughs> aptly named the Don Juan, across the Gulf of Spezia to visit his friend, the radical intellect, Lee Hunt. Joining him on the journey was his friend, retired naval officer Edward Williams and Charles Vivian, an 18-year-old boat boy. After their visit, the boat did not return and their bodies were found three days later. After their cremation, Mary returned to England with her son Percy. She received a small stipend from her deceased husband's father because of raising young Percy, but even after it was increased to £250 a year on the death of young Percy's older half-brother, it was barely enough to get by. Mary continued editing and publishing Percy's works beginning the immortalisation of her deceased husband and, during this time, turned down a marriage proposal from renowned American actor and playwright John Howard Payne. In 1827, Mary's friend Isabel Robertson came to her for help. Isabel needed passports for her and her husband, Scottish author David Lindsay, to be able to live in Paris as man and wife. Mary helped through her contacts via John Payne and the couple successfully left England as a couple. Forge a couple of documents, no problem, you're just helping out a friend at a time of need. And they were only wanting to be married after all, no harm, no foul, right? Might need to mention here that David was actually Mary Diana Dodds, a woman who lived her life as a man. And yes, the amazing David slash Mary, later known as Walter Sholto Douglas, is going to be a podcast for another time. It is an amazing tale. Later on, Mary's son Percy went to Trinity College, although he never showed the literary gifts of his parents. Mary had moved close by so that on her limited budget, he was able to live with her and attend school. In 1840 and 1842, the two travelled around Europe and it was in 1844 that Percy Jr's grandfather died and finally left them in a secure financial position. In 1848, Percy married Jane Gibson St John and reportedly Jane and Mary were quite close. But since 1839, Mary had been in ill health. She suffered from headaches and temporary paralysis that prevented her from writing. On February 1st, 1851, Mary Shelley died of what was believed to have been a brain tumour. She was just 53 years old. Buried at St Peter's Church, Bournemouth, it was on the first anniversary of her death that her son opened her box desk. Inside, they found locks from her dead children's hair, a notebook that she had shared with her husband, a copy of his poem Adonis, and a silk parcel 
containing some of his ashes and the physical remains of his heart. Goth girl to the end. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that, and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>